0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of Sound Strategic. I am Maya Owens, and today's episode will be the first in a series of podcasts that will focus on COVID-19 virus and assess its impact on international relations and global affairs. The scale and severity of the COVID-19 pandemic has profoundly changed daily life on a global scale. These special episodes of Sound Strategic aim to provide timely and detailed insights into the political, economic, and strategic factors at work in the countries and regions affected by the virus. Our first episode will focus on the Middle East and how the geopolitical dynamics there have already worsened the spread of the virus. To discuss this topic, I'm joined today by Masa Rohi, Research Fellow in the IISS's Nonproliferation and Nuclear Policy Program, and Emil Hukayem, the IISS's Senior Fellow for Middle East Security. Welcome both. Hello. Thank you. Uh, maybe I'll just start with the status of the pandemic in both the Gulf and Iran, um, and where we are at the moment. What do you see about on the spread of the virus in uh, your respective areas of um expertise uh, maybe first starting with um Emil. Um
1: in the gulf for the moment uh it doesn't seem like the um the virus has spread uh, extensively. Of course uh there are uh, issues of of testing, transparency of data, etc. uh but uh, a number of gulf states have taken uh, early measures uh because of their uh, special uh uh situation. Um, to prevent uh, uh the spread of uh, of covid-19 uh, in particular and that was quite uh notable uh, saudi arabia has decided to suspend uh, religious pilgrimage um in uh, the holy cities of uh, mecca and medina um a decision that you know required some uh, political courage uh, given of uh, how important uh, uh this pilgrimage is to uh, the community of uh, muslim faithful um Elsewhere, um you know it really depends on uh the the um the strength of of the health systems and the monitoring systems uh, the UAE has a pretty sophisticated uh, um uh, monitoring uh, uh network and um but they also are uh, where the most exposed country uh, because it serves as a global hub for transportation aviation and so on um and uh they their response has been gradual they didn't go for an immediate large scale lockdown they uh, slowly rolled out a series of measures and at the moment it seems that only a couple of people have uh uh died from the virus and uh, the numbers are uh you know a few dozens uh probably you know around uh, 100 or so there um saudi arabia has uh, is a much larger country, but uh, not as uh, uh, central in terms of, uh, uh, you know, global uh, travel and and so on. And because of the measures around the Hajj, uh, it seems like Saudi has been able to contain to some extent uh, this. Um, you know, Massa will talk about uh, about Iran, but uh, just to make the link there, it seems like some, not, certainly not all, but some of the early infections. Um, in uh, Bahain, in uh, Saudi Arabia, uh, uh, came from actually uh, uh, pilgrims from these nations who had traveled to Iran and, and come back. Um, and uh, because of the lack of measures uh, on both sides at the time, uh, the, 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 the infection spread uh, uh, in, in, in a couple of regions, in Saudi Arabia and uh, in Bahain. Um, But it's not, at the moment, it's not yet a crisis on par with what's happening in in Europe or happened in uh, parts of uh, North East Asia.
0: Mm. And Masak, what about Iran then? The situation is very different as far as I understand it. Right so um
2: Iran actually was one of the hardest hit countries um uh, and there was a lot of uh discussion about you know uh, how much of it as was the was the mishandling or the lack of initial timely response um to this issue I wanted before getting into some details about Iran's situation jumping on something that was um you know quite interesting to me which was Bahrain and Iran don't have any diplomatic relations but yet as Emil mentioned there were cases uh, you know of, of Bahraini citizens uh, that was that had spread the virus from uh, coming to Iran uh, for religious ceremonies etc that was what the Bahraini government said so it, it emphasizes how much this virus is more of a global issue and it's not it, it was not to be contained within any country's borders and so when we look at the, the problem of um, this virus is is beyond borders. Like we can't think of it as the, this is Iran's problem or this is Italy's problem or this is the UK's problem, etc. anymore. And it was, uh, you know, like that from the beginning. And I think the neighbors, um, Iran's neighbors, understood this quite early on and 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 reacted accordingly and, and sent help, which we'll talk about this. I think I guess later about uh, the, the cooperation. But I think it was important to sort of just mention this here. Um, As of today, the official records of uh, the illness in in Iran uh, is uh, over 44,000 cases, and there has been more than 3,000 cases just in the past 24 hours. Um, As of now, finally, the government has ordered uh, sort of the the closure of the roads to and from Tehran and the closure of the parks. Um, tomorrow, actually, would be April 1st, would be the 13th day of Nowruz, where Iranians traditionally all celebrate by going to outdoor spaces in groups. And this is what everybody has feared for for days and weeks now. Um, to To make sure that this is contained. There are a good portion of the population who is abiding by this, but there is a good portion of the population who is also not abiding by these rules because of the mistrust that they have of the government and what the government instructs them to do. Um, so that's, so far, the situation in Iran. I mean, there's a lot of uh, grievances from the beginning and a lot of public anger um of how this situation was handled and and how the government you know there were uh people raising these issues of why did the flights to China continue even though many other countries at the time um you know stopped their flights to China uh, why wasn't the city of Guangzhou who was the which was the epicenter of um of, of the virus when it first started not Quarantined at the time. There were, as it moved on, there's just so much of uh, public anger against sort of mismanagement and mishandling. Um, all of which I, I would say is is um, valid concern and valid anger. Uh, and then there is the issue of obviously the, the limits of uh the limits that sanctions impose uh on the government and in general, on, on even private sector uh medical companies, etc. who are dealing with this. Um but I think another issue worth uh mentioning is that how much of uh, how much the NGOs and sort of the um smaller public like social groups have been able to um, help with charity and help with the situation and provide um, relief. I mean, it's it's still not enough, but it's been really um, it's been really significant of how much of these efforts have happened.
0: That's a really good point, Masa, and thanks for going into such detail on it. I think um, I'm interested in this um, in what you said about uh, the. The public's mistrust of the government and its efforts at the moment, um, how that it's how that is expressed, um, and also um, almost this notion that the Iranian regime, with all its authoritarian tendencies, doesn't have control over um, uh, flows of movement. Um, for example, gatherings um, for Nowruz to the extent that outside observers might think that it does, and um, because of the nature of the regime. Um, could you go into that a little bit more?
2: Sure. So first, the, the mistrust, I think I should mention that this, you know, we have to think about this virus in, in, in a little bit of a, uh, more of a context of what's ha- what started happening in January 2020. I mean, uh, Iranians were almost at the brink of war with the U.S., and so there was that prospect already, you know, looming. And then, uh it was the shutdown of the ukrainian air aircraft which created an an unprecedented mistrust between the the population and the state um and it sort of this was i think the underlying factor of why there was so much anger and also mistrust on the coronavirus issue. I mean, obviously there were a lot of mishandling on this very specific issue that caused the mistrust, but I think in the, this, on top of what was already existing, um, made it you know made the public be very very doubtful of what the government is asking them to do. Um, and you know, from you know, many say from the government perspective, because they're also part of it was because they're so strained by the sanctions from the U.S. and the West in general, and they're relying increasingly on China, they refrain from taking um, taking action in time. And I think one of the other points of grievances that I heard um, a lot from you know people on the ground was the fact that they were saying that, you know, why is it that we could not uh, impose travel restrictions with China to the point that all of our, like Iran's neighbors, like the whole country was quarantined, um, all the neighboring countries closed their borders to Iran. And um, people felt like if the government had taken timely action, in in quarantine uh, measures and in terms of travel restrictions to China, Iran would not. They 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 basically took it as sort of a, a little bit of a national humiliation. Obviously, they understood why the neighboring countries took that decision, so it wasn't that. But they they felt like this should not have come to this point. Um, and in terms of uh, not not abiding by the regulations there's also, I think, a, a good portion of the population sort of didn't take this very seriously as part of why they didn't believe, you know, um, what the government is telling them. And so, uh, you know, they started at Nowruz is when people travel. And even though there was so much on the national TV and sort of, you know, restrictions on only essential travel, there were so many reports coming out of people still, you know, traveling to different cities north of Iran, which is where people usually travel during this time um they you know they have very limited health care um and it it barely covers their own population in that region. And for them to have a huge population to run in other parts of the country coming in and, and, and potentially spreading the virus was you know, was gonna be a disaster. And so there was so much of controlling the roads, but still people will go and it and it essentially created sort of lines and lines of um, people waiting to get through sort of security and pass through these roads, which created another uh, another nightmare scenario for the government.
0: Right. And so in terms of the relationship with the United States at the moment, um, how much, how has the rejection by the U.S. administration of possibly lifting sanctions or easing sanctions at this point in time um How has that been um, responded to by the Iranian public? Um, Is it uh, working in the favor of the uh, Iranian regime, uh, whereby they can deflect uh, to a certain extent the blame for the current situation in Iran?
2: Well, yes and no. So the 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 regime, and particularly Rouhani's government, uh, has been very much uh, proactive in 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 trying to create this narrative that you know a, a big portion of the blame lies with the sanctions and not with the government mishandling. But I, I you know I, I I doubt that the population is buying that, and I and I think that you know. Uh, mostly people in Iran or or the population are blaming both. They understand that there is a situation where they're being punished by an ineffective government and the U.S. administration with the sanctions. And so they're caught, again, and this is like a classic situation where it happens over and over in different situations, where they're caught in between um, the mishandling of their own government And the pressure, the international pressure through sanctions. Um, But it's really, it's a combination of both. And I think it's understood as being a combination of both. You know, when people, you know, worry about the sanctions and the effect it's having on their medical sort of uh, supplies, they also at the same time blame the government for it. Um, and not the sanctions, and I think this is one of the points that has been very much misrepresented in in the media. There's there's you know two camps have been created that either the sanctions are the problems, or if you're saying sanctions are creating problems, then you're ignoring uh, the government's um, corruption, the mishandling, or the other way around. Whereas really, it's it's just a combination of both that is really hard hitting. Um, the healthcare system and the population. And I think it's, uh, it's, it's a really important issue.
0: Right, fascinating. Um, of course, while all of this is happening, there are other ongoing conflicts elsewhere in the Middle East as well, namely in Syria, as well as in Yemen. Emil, could you speak a little bit as to how um, these current conflicts are um, being impacted by the global pandemic?
1: Yeah, th- there are several layers to that. I mean, the first one is that in both countries, um, both were relatively poor countries, although Yemen was uh, considerably poorer than uh, than Syria at the outset of their respective conflict. Uh, but the quality of public health was already um, low, and uh, a lot of the the, the fighting uh, has um, uh, occurred and has targeted medical facilities and other public uh, uh, health uh, installations in, in both countries. Uh, in Syria, um, over half of all uh, medical facilities have been uh, destroyed during the war, and uh, medical professionals are on the run, etc. Um, and Syria has the largest proportion of IDPs and refugees of all conflicts, uh, of all uh, contemporary conflicts at this point. There are uh, over six million refugees and, uh, you know, around six million IDPs internally displaced people. Uh, The numbers in Yemen are also uh, uh, horrendous. So uh, first, you have the collapse of the basic infrastructure that uh, would otherwise help counter the spread of the virus. Uh, The second one is that you don't have the governance uh, capacity. Uh, because of the political differences, because of the ongoing fighting, etc., to have a, a concerted response to that, um, including a communication campaign explaining to people what they need to do, etc. Um, fundamentally, also, you have a fundamental lack of uh, the basic necessities that we, the lucky ones, uh, have access to, which is uh, water and soap and you know some of the other uh uh necessities that we need to protect ourselves and uh you know uh social uh you know self-isolation and social distancing um in in refugee camps and in in uh you know mostly destroyed uh uh cities and so on is is a very difficult thing to to do um so from that perspective it's it's quite uh um it's it's quite worrisome you have to add to that that um, you know the the main funders, uh, the the big countries that have helped uh, um, resource uh, uh, the UNHCR and and other you know international organizations that so that deal with with refugees, um, they may well decide in the next uh, period that uh, they have to focus on economic re- recovery at home um and that funding for refugee you know health education uh, infrastructure and so on is going to um decrease significantly um so it's a cascade of uh, of uh, uh uh of problems i mean the coronavirus essentially will will supercharge and exacerbate all the existing problems i mean the number of beds per capita in some of the countries uh is less than one bed per 1000 people um you know sometimes much less than that uh, so it's a quite dire uh, uh, it's a quite dire uh, uh, situation uh, going back to something that Massa said just like you know many Iranians for instance have wondered why didn't Iran uh, not uh, uh, interrupt flights to China uh, early on uh, there are parts in the Middle East and especially that has been the case in in Syria and Lebanon and elsewhere the question is why were flights to Iran from these countries not interrupted. Um, uh, but that feeds in the current political sector and polarization in the region. Um, you know, I, I'm speculating here, but I suspect that you know, part of the reasoning in Iran towards China is China is a very important country. There are important relations ships to, to cultivate, and uh, the economic harm would have been substantive. Right when it comes to the Middle East uh, and uh, sorry the Arab parts of the Arab world, um, the discussion can be even more charged. Uh, why were Shia pilgrims from Lebanon or uh, or Syria and so on allowed to return? Um, and that is a supercharge in in those very uh, uh, tense uh, environments. Um, so overall, I think what this crisis is going to do is that it's going to, you know, overexpose and exacerbate a lot of the, you know, structural problems, and it will show the lack of capacity of central states. Um, to, to deal with that, I mean, the Gulf states, which we discussed earlier, um, have uh, massive financial resources. They have, uh, they they're able to, you know, buy the masks and the tests and pay for foreign nurses and, you know, deploy, uh, you know, surveillance technology and uh, and, you know, subsidize their industries that are hurt uh, by by this crisis. Um, not so in countries like Egypt. Uh, like uh, like Lebanon, uh, like Iraq, which is also affected by dropping oil prices um, at the moment. Um, so you know, we're, I think we're, we're, the Middle East is, has not yet seen uh, peak uh, COVID. Um, certainly, hopefully, Iran has seen that and, and can put it behind. But uh, the Arab parts of the Middle East are are exposed to that, um, and so you know, the difficult days. Uh, uh, are, are still ahead.
0: Right, and both of you have now mentioned the uh, fundamental lack uh inability of central governments to either enact measures in a timely fashion or um, a lack of resources on the central governments' um, parts in certain countries. Um, and Masa mentioned the uh, role of grassroots organizations and NGOs in perhaps filling that gap to um, a certain extent. Um, Massa, can you go in on that a a little bit more
2: sure, uh, let me first start by saying that this issue of uh, this virus has been from the get-go one of the uh, one of the pandemics that each country, even the countries with resources, I mean we're talking about European countries or or, or u s are getting a lot of criticism. Um, you know, Americans are outraged by how the the administration is handling. Uh, I've heard British grievances of how the government responded to this virus, Uh, Italy the same. So it's been a, quite an unusual um, issue to deal with. So I think it's it's only fair, while we mention all the mismanagement and mishandling and lack of resources in the Middle East, um, to also point out that even the world's great powers have been struggling with this, and, and whether it's the issue of time to response, whether how to prioritize economy versus uh, you know flattening the curve of, of the virus. And so I think if we keep that in mind, then thinking about, you know, a region where it's not known for best governance and add that, then we realize that, it's been really, it's been really a, a huge challenge for for the countries in the region to deal with, and and it's not, you know, um, by by itself, you know, even with resources and 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 the best of sort of democratic states, it's not been as easy to to respond in a timely and effective manner um, to the virus. So, um, but the the NGOs and charities. <clears throat> have been doing a lot of different kind of work. So those that I've been lucky enough to come across and know their work, some of them are helping, uh, you know, Emil mentioned the refugee camps, and I think it's really, really cannot be emphasized enough that everywhere in the region, even in Iran, uh, you know, the refugees have been hit the hardest and and, and the poor population because people who are uh, living on daily sort of wages, Um, just cannot afford to stay home and and not go to work. And we see videos coming out of these, uh, you know, particularly different parts of Iran, of interviewing people. Why are you still on the street selling and right before the new year? Imagine if this had hit um, Europe uh, right before Christmas. Imagine what the impact on the businesses and people would have been compared to. It's still a huge impact, but imagine that timing. And this is what's been happening in Iran. So what the NGOs have been doing is trying to help out um, the families with like lower income, the the refugees, et cetera, who just were living on a daily uh, salary, people who were, you know, going to uh, construction sites or cleaning houses, etc., that now have lost their income, try to reach out to them to make sure that they have basic sort of food necessities so that they don't have to go out to work in in groups in order to to afford that. On the medical part, uh, there was sort of a, a you know one uh, NGO called Nafas sort of built a a, a hospital focused on, on this. Um, with, with all the supplies, et cetera. Again, I keep hearing even from these groups that they have a lot of difficulty if they need to purchase any any equipment from outside. Um, you know, The medical supplies are exempt from sanctions, so you hear that a lot, that, well, the humanitarian aid and the medical supplies are not under sanctions, so there shouldn't be a problem. That's true, but then all the financial system is sanctioned, so how are you going to pay, even if you have the money, um, which some of these groups have, and you want to purchase something, there is no company that will ship it, and there is no bank that will do the transaction with it. So it's been, you know, it's been creating a lot of difficulty, even for the non-state actors who are trying to help this. Um, and and there's been a lot of infighting too. So there's been, uh, even though there are like the the known NGOs who have been working in Iran and are trusted, have been able to do some work, but anything that has you know is starting as a charity. If they want to do something within the healthcare, it's uh been met with some resistance with some hardline um factions within within the government or the IRGC who want to who who want to sort of basically um keep the face of that they are able to handle the situation very well and they sort of they don't need that kind of external help. But but as I said, the the I think these. Uh, social groups and charities have been really, really essential in helping. If there's been factories uh, who have offered their workers um, to to sort of divert and help either making masks or help with the equipment, et cetera. So there's been a lot of sort of um, grassroots kind of uh, efforts that I think has been hugely, hugely helpful in, in Tehran.
0: I mean, I I take on your point that um, these are positive stories that should be told as well to show that there's um, a sense of community and a sense of shared experience um, that are that's bringing people together. And we we actually saw the same in China um, uh, before the government lockdown in Hubei province took place, where local um, neighborhoods were actually uh, taking it upon themselves to put up makeshift barriers and and trying to control um, uh, movement and also taking care of neighbors and things like that. And we see the same here in Europe at the moment as well, in London. Um, what about uh, Emile?
1: Well, I mean, first, let me echo what Massa was saying at first uh, here, which is that um, you know we have to understand that the way uh, the virus is spreading and the responses um, it, it's not it 's not just a matter of resources it 's a matter of trust of communication of ability of leaderships to you know to well trust the science and and uh, and uh, embrace uh, you know what the judgments of scientists uh, are uh it's it's also, I mean, you know, in, when it comes to the Middle East, um, these are, in a way, resilient societies because they've been through so much recently uh, with a high sense of communal solidarity. Um, so one would expect a lot of the responses that uh, Massa was, uh, uh, was uh, describing, and we see some of them in, in other Arab countries, in, in other Middle Eastern countries. Um, but the problem, I think, fundamentally here is that usually when faced with adversity, Uh, the response is for people to come together. And here, the safe response is to stay at home, uh, to isolate. And I think, you know, there is a big contradiction between, uh, you know, what is ingrained in our societies, which is you look for security in numbers by rallying, by families coming together and so on, and what is needed now, which is essentially stay at home and try to say um and so you, we see a tension, uh on this on this level the second point uh, you know uh, i mean more to the point here um about non state uh, non state actors and uh, and so on i think it's it's really interesting um states are clearly you know Uh, are clearly going to face a a massive challenge in in the Middle East in in the coming uh, weeks and months uh, to deal with the virus itself, but also with the second and third order effect of the virus. And so the question here is that will people turn to, you know, non-state actors, including in the Arab world, uh, some of the armed non-state actors who have a social uh, wing, uh, you know, and provide health and social services and so on, uh, Yes that's possible and we already see for instance uh, militias in Iraq broadcasting uh, messages about uh, you know uh, how to how to behave and uh um, and we see uh, political parties in, in Lebanon, for instance, uh, distributing gel and, like, uh, fumigating areas. I mean, it may be totally uh, ineffective, but at least they show, um, they demonstrate publicly that they're they're uh, on top and they're trying to contribute to the society's well-being. The problem here is that they, can, they are not uh, uh, able... I mean, this is a global challenge. And so it's not by... Uh, focusing on one's community, you know, village, city, and so on, that one's going to be able to deal with that. And you still need the the convening power of a state, the the, the ability to import uh, the medicine, the the, uh, uh, the equipment that is needed, etc. Um, that will matter down down the road. So, states, uh, non-state actors may end up actually, you know, uh, making things work by. Eroding the, the the image and the, the the reach of the state, without being able to fully compensate uh, uh, for uh, for the state's uh, deficiencies, um, so it, it is going to be uh, uh, quite uh, quite difficult. The NGO uh, sector in the Arab world is not as developed as it is elsewhere. Of course, you have a lot of uh, informal networks, and you have. Uh, you know religious networks that provide social services and they'll be you know active but they they are not uh, necessarily the 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 modern uh, and specialized NGOs uh, that can uh, um, uh, uh, protect uh, societies uh, they're much more about charity food distribution and so on not necessarily about uh, immediate uh, healthcare responses and the kind of of structural economic help that's going to be needed to jumpstart these these economies that are frozen at the moment.
0: Maybe to end on a last question that hopefully will also be a a more positive note, Um, what do both of you see for um, the possibility of more regional cooperation here?
1: Well, I mean, uh, we already see that a number of countries are um donating uh, uh you know the the kind of um medical uh, uh equipment and uh, you know including masks and tests and so on to to others uh the question is whether uh, this you know this is done in the numbers that really matter um or is it just uh you know a show of solidarity of support um because I mean, the the scale of the crisis is is quite significant. I mean, perhaps as important as, uh, you know, responding to the virus itself and the the health implications, uh, it is how to uh, restart the economies afterwards. It's whether a a variety of countries in the region can agree on, you know, measures uh, to, you know, provide funding, credit lines, et cetera, uh, but on a regional level rather than have, you know the rich the rich countries focus on their own economies and let the the poorer ones uh 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 sink into into economic disarray even more um i am still i'm still uh, debating uh w- you know at a time of uh, uh, um dropping oil prices and so on you know what the typical regional funders such as saudi arabia the uae kuwait qatar and so on Uh, will be uh, able uh, to do Um, and it's not necessarily uh, clear that uh, one will have the kind of integrated response if the EU has struggled so much to put a package of help to you know countries like uh, like Italy and possibly Spain and others um, then perhaps the expectations in terms of uh, of, uh, Arab countries uh, should be uh, should be low.
2: Yes, uh, sure. Yeah, I want to give some a, a few thoughts here. Um, to end our conversation, first one following off of uh, what Emil mentioned, I think, uh, I, I agree with the, with with the points, but I also want to emphasize that this is a moment that will be defining for the relationship of the countries moving forward. So, uh. Yes, there are difficulties in 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 aiding, but I think the members of community who will not be supported enough and be left alone, it will be a choice that they will remember, and it will impact the diplomatic relations moving forward. I mean, I've uh, there are many pieces coming from Italy making the same argument that Italy, you know, might rethink the value of uh, what it means to be part of the European Union, um, and 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 I think it's it's a moment that it, it's. It's very important to keep in mind how to to respond to the needs of different countries. I mean, I was pleasantly surprised by hearing that the the UAE and Kuwait, in particular. Uh, Qatar also offered help to Iran but Qatar and Iran have sort of uh, fairly good diplomatic relations but UAE and Kuwait have strained their relationship with Iran is is strained but they're still sort of um offered help and I think that will go a long way in 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 the future um of of the relationship that in the moment of need these countries were able and willing to put aside other uh, differences and, and and offer help similarly other than and so I think this this provides a really important opportunity for um, trying to work together trying to understand that there are issues that will require regional cooperation to respond to such as a pandemic so maybe that would be a starting point for building better um, relations and trying to resolve other issues and differences in the future and I think another point, which Maya, you could also um, speak to this as well, is is China and whether how China versus U.S. or the the, the or or um, Russia, China, and U.S. are handling this in in their relationship with the Middle East, um, what kind of long term implications it would have, and not only in the way that they're dealing with the Middle East, the, the countries in the Middle East, but the way that they will handle this pandemic at home. What would this mean for the reputation of great powers and the perception that the Middle Eastern countries will have as they move towards the future um, in in terms of who will be able to take lead on uh, on such situation better and who they can rely more? Um, and, and, and I think that uh, You know, this is something that it's not been it's been understated that the importance of the handling of this pandemic for the future international relations or international affairs in the region and diplomatic relations.
0: I think that is such an excellent point to end on, Masa, um, and one that should be discussed in future, how great power rivalry will be affected by the outbreak of COVID-19, um, as well as the different narratives that are being um being um, promoted in uh, response uh, with regards to the response of certain countries like the United States, um, and in particular, China, and how those narratives have changed over time. But that is all that we have time for today. So I will thank both of you for sharing great insights into the region. And we're looking forward to reading your further research on the topics that we discussed today from um, both of you over the course of the year. Um, I'd like to thank our listeners for joining us today and also to remind them to please subscribe to Sound Strategic for more in-depth discussions just like this. So stay safe and see you next time.